If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Marcus Aurelius is not an easy figure to categorise. Described as one of Rome's five good emperors, he also became notorious for the persecution of Christians. Though renowned for his philosophical writing, he spent much of his reign engaged in military campaigning. In the June issue of BBC History magazine, Dr Shushma Malik of Roehampton University explores Marcus Aurelius's remarkable career. And that's the subject of today's conversation with the magazine's editor, Rob Attar. A few months ago, we spoke on this podcast about Nero, who I suppose is the archetypal bad emperor, and you argued then for viewing him in a more nuanced way. Today we have Marcus Aurelius, who is perhaps the classic good emperor, but is it also the case here that that reputation is a bit too simplistic? Yeah, I think with lots of historical characters, with with humans, in fact, there's often, you know, we all have our good points and our bad points. Um, I think it's certainly true that while Nero made many mistakes in his in his reign, Marcus Aurelius made far fewer mistakes as far as our historians are are concerned. Um, also with Marcus Aurelius, it does depend to some extent on who you ask. So um, there was a tradition in um, a later period with the early Christians, so from about the 4th century onwards, um, of of criticising Marcus Aurelius very severely, um, in fact, for, for the persecutions of the Christians that took place during his reign. So if you were to ask Eusebius what he thought of Marcus Aurelius, um, he may have put him, well, he did, in fact, put him in a series of persecutor emperors that started with Nero, and Marcus Aurelius was one of those emperors. Um, however, our sources from, uh, that talk about his reign um, from the uh, pagan histories, I guess, the classical histories, um, are generally much more um, positive about him. And um, he is uh, the emperor who is both fair and um, has a good education, but also actually has to deal with quite a lot during his reign, including um, uh, wars and coming into Italy of, of um, peoples from, from across the other side of the Rhine and of the Danube. Um, but also he has to deal with plague as well during his reign. So he has quite a lot to contend with. Um, and actually, I was going to ask you about it later, but I could, I could ask you now. Um, 
the persecution of Christians is is one of the things that Marcus Aurelius is criticised for nowadays. How kind of atypical was that? Was Were all the other emperors at this time persecuting Christians? Or was this something that he was doing to a greater extent? Yeah, so the important thing here is that um, to understand really the context of the persecution of Christians in this um, period, when we say persecution, we think generally of something sort of systematic, something empire-wide perhaps, something that, um, that uh, meant all Christians across the empire needed to... Um, be scared for their lives. Um, And that did happen during the Roman period. Absolutely, that did happen, but not this early. So when we're talking about Marcus Aurelius in the sort of 160s, 170s um, CE, really what we have is local instances of persecution. And and we had had that before. Um, After Nero, we have um, Domitian and then also um, some problems under Trajan as well. Um, So he's, he's not you know, unique in this um, at all. He's not the first after Nero to to be having problems with um, with what to do with Christians, as it were. But he is um, one emperor who had quite a few instances of those local persecutions during his reign in Asia Minor, so modern day Turkey, but also in Gaul, so sort of France, uh, modern day France. Um, so because there were more instances or, or more. Um, well recorded by the Christian authors um, instances during his reign. He he is um, associated with that again in later Christian literature as well as we might expect. And there was um, quite a few instances, like I say, during uh, during his reign. Um, one of the earlier Christian sources, so I talked about Eusebius in the fourth century, but an earlier Christian source, Tertullian, so late second, early third century, he's a bit of an apologist for Marcus Aurelius. He says, well, these were local. He, you know, didn't really have a necessarily a, an overview of what was happening. He wasn't saying to every local governor, yes, do that, um, was the way that Tertullian um, explains it. Um, our classical sources, uh, by which I mean mainly Cassius Dio in terms of, of narrative history, um, doesn't mention it. Uh, so we don't have that that particular perspective. But it is it's not. Um, yeah, it's not something that's sort of systematic and empire wide at this point. But it is, um, uh, you know, these local events are taking place and Christians are being being punished and killed and um, in, in places during Marcus Aurelius's reign. Now, so Marcus Aurelius, um, at the time he becomes emperor, emperors are not generally inheriting the throne from their, their father, are they? They're, they're typically being adopted. So how how does he first come into the line of succession then? Um, so during this period, which is sort of known as the adoptive emperors, which started with um, the Emperor Nerva in 96 uh, CE, <laughs> 96, yes, 96 CE, um, starting with Nerva, they were um, emperors who were adopted rather than um, succeeding uh, because of uh, because they were the sons of the previous emperors. Um, now, it's it's tempting because of the way that sort of later historians have spoken about it to see this as a kind of, you know, a judgment call as something that that the emperors um, saw the, the, you know, errors of previous dynasties and wanted to correct it. Actually, they just didn't have sons. And we see that with Marcus Aurelius, um, you know, clearly, because when he does have a son who can take up um, the position of emperor, he does, um, you know, have um, his own son as his heir. Um, and actually, the relationship between um, 
the previous emperor, Antoninus Pius, and Marcus Aurelius is a close one. So um, Antoninus Pius is married to Marcus Aurelius's aunt, um, and also Marcus Aurelius is married to um, uh, Antoninus Pius, Pius's daughter. So there is a family connection there. He's the previous emperor's son-in-law, in other, in other words. Um, so, and, and he's also adopted very early on by Antoninus Pius as well, as is um, his co-emperor, Lucius Verus, um, the person who will become his co-emperor. So we do have um, a sense of sort of a family uh, a connection there, um, both through the fact that Antoninus Pius is his sort of uncle-in-law and also because um, he is married to, to Faustina. So this, he is the last of the adoptive emperors because, as I said, he names his uh, son Commodus as heir. Uh, when uh, to succeed him when he dies but we do have this period of, of Roman history where uh, the the emperors do um, tend to to adopt rather than uh, but not necessarily because of uh, you know through choice. <laughs> and so Marcus Aurelius doesn't become emperor until he's I think around 40. Yes. So pro prior to that how does he prepare or how is he being prepared for terrain. Yeah, so he, um, as you say, becomes emperor when he's 40 in 161 CE. He was born in 121 um, CE. And he has been sort of picked out to go into that role since the death of the emperor before Antoninus Pius, which was Hadrian. Um, when when Hadrian dies, Antoninus Pius is still very young. He's still a teenager. But um, he has sort of been marked out or his family have been marked out as one that um, uh, should come into the line of succession. So Antoninus Pius um, adopts Marcus Aurelius as soon as he becomes, um, as soon as Antoninus Pius becomes emperor and Lucius Verus as well. Um, so there is, a, you know, right from that stage, right from that early point, um, an expectation of his um, succession to uh, become emperor in due course. Um, what he does is he uh, moves in with Antoninus Pius, his adopted father, um, eventually, and he um, also sort of spends a lot of time with him there. Um, the letters that go between um, Marcus Aurelius and his one of his tutors, Fronto, um, suggests that he has quite a close relationship with Antoninus Pius. They travel together. Um, Antoninus Pius doesn't actually leave Italy um, during his reign. He very much likes to stay at home. Um, and Marcus Aurelius is also very happy with that. They go off to different parts of, of Italy and, and uh, spend days together. And, and you know, so it's quite a close relationship there. Um, he also is very close to his, his other family, his mother, his birth mother, um, as well as his sister. So we do um, have sort of a sense that he's um, living a, um, a life of an, where he's expecting to become emperor, but is living um, with, his, uh, with his adopted father, but also paying quite close attention to his family and, and being a good son and a good brother as well. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times that actually Marcus Aurelius is a joint emperor with Lucius Verus. You don't hear so much about Lucius Verus these days. Does that suggest that actually this wasn't an equal relationship and Marcus Aurelius was the dominant emperor or actually were they quite equal? Yeah, so Marcus Aurelius was older than Lucius Verus. So um, he was sort of dominant in that respect. He was sort of senior, I guess, in, in, in that respect when they both became emperor. Um, the other thing is that Lucius Verus um, dies uh, in 169 CE, so eight years after 
uh, they both become emperors. So um, Marcus Aurelius dies in 180, so he has the longer reign um, of the two as well, and of course has um, a much more uh, prolific, um, uh, you know, uh, write up in the history books as well. <laughs> um, you know, not only in antiquity but but since then. Um, Lucius Verus, in some sources, sort of acts as a counterpoint to Marcus Aurelius, which is which is interesting. If Marcus Aurelius is a wise sort of philosopher emperor. Lucius Verus, in one source, in Cassius Dio, is the, the warrior-like emperor. He's ready to go and deal with the problems that occur on the frontier. He is good, you know, with the military. He knows how to interact with soldiers. He's much better equipped. Um, Cassius Dio says Marcus Aurelius is actually quite sickly, whereas Lucius Verus is younger and he's stronger and he's ready to go. Um, the Historia Augusta, which is a um, later biography and not a particularly reliable biography, so we've got to kind of, you know, take a lot of what they say or what that, that the biographer says, actually. They're claiming to be more than one person, but it is one person. Um, what that biographer says... Uh, with a pinch of salt. But in that biography, in um, uh, the characterization of Marcus Aurelius is more of someone who is uh, very a very good emperor. He is strong. He's not that ill. Lucius Verus is immoral and he doesn't know how to behave properly. He's sort of a bit like a Nero kind of character. Um, he is too interested in the theatre. He's too interested in, in um, entertainments. Um, and that's why Lucius Verus goes off in that first instance when there's problems in the frontier, uh, because Marcus Aurelius thinks that that will help him to sort of rein in his his um, luxurious side and his indulgences a little bit. So th the same event happens. Lucius Verus goes off to the the frontier um, in the east in uh, right very early on in their reign. But the reason for it is very different in our two sources. Is he the younger, stronger man, better equipped, better, more of a military person, or is he this immoral um, uh, character who needs some sort of reform? Uh, to take place. But it, it, he's certainly an interesting, um, you know, co-emperor for Marcus Aurelius to, to act as a way of bringing out character of both of those, those people. But as you say, he's just not really been made as famous um, as Marcus Aurelius. And, and when um, Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus come to power in 161 AD, what, what is the state of the Roman Empire? What are the most pressing concerns for them? Um, so at the same time as sort of Antoninus Pius dies and, and they uh, Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus take over, um, there are some problems immediately in the east, on the eastern borders um, with Parthia. And that's not a, um, it's not a coincidence that that happens as there's a transition of power. That very transition is a weakness, um, you know, is seen as a weakness. There's a new emperor or emperors in this case. Uh, they don't have very much military experience between them. In fact, uh, Marcus Aurelius really has none at all. Um, and uh, so the Parthian king used that as a, um, a time, a good time, to go into Armenia and uh, put in his own uh, king in place rather than the, the Roman client king. Um, so that immediately needs to be dealt with. Um, and that's when Lucius Verus goes off to the frontier to deal with that. He's there from um, uh, the, the sort of early 160s to, to the mid. He comes back to Rome in 166 CE, having successfully um, uh, dealt with, with the problem. Um, 
And we hear, again, uh, you know, we have the two different versions of Lucius Verus, if you like, but there is a letter from uh, Fronto, that that tutor, who was also a tutor to Lucius Verus, um, talking about um, how Lucius, um, uh, you know, was very good with the soldiers. He was very good and organised. He got everybody sort of in the military ready, and that was why he was so successful in in Parthia and that he had those qualities. So it does seem that 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 particular problem was... um, you know, dealt with it at that time, um, you know, it's going to recur again and, and people are going to be sent out to Parthia again. Um, but actually Marcus Aurelius, um, during the time when he is uh, acting as a military emperor, um, is mainly focused on the north. So um, the Rhine and the Danube and the um, people who are coming over from the other side of, of those um, territories and coming into, into Rome. And in particular, um, they make it to Italy, it seems, which is uh, extraordinary and um, not happened for a very long time. And actually, in, in the article that you've written for the magazine, you, you stress Marcus Aurelius's kind of warrior emperor credentials. So... Um... How how far do you see him as a kind of military commander and how unusual was it for an emperor to be leading his troops at this time? So he is perhaps best described, I think, as a reluctant military commander. Um, it, I don't think it's necessarily how he imagined his reign would be if, you know, he did imagine his reign as anything in particular. Antoninus Pius's reign had been so peaceful. Uh, they'd been able to stay in Italy. They hadn't had to go, you know, over to the borders. He hadn't had to really engage in that military side of things. But the emperor um, before Hadrian, so um, we've got Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, then Marcus Aurelius, they're the five sort of adoptive emperors. Um, Trajan was um, a very active military emperor and he um, expanded the Roman Empire into Dacia, which again is one of those regions that um, is now becoming, um, you know, that that they have to have some military presence in. And he also expanded um, further into Parthia as well. So he was a very um, active uh, emperor in those terms and he brought a lot of wealth into Rome we've got Trajan's column of course and um, you know accounts of huge spectacles um, that that took place because of his uh, uh, successes 123 days of games in the Colosseum for example um, when uh, when he uh, takes Dacia um, so Trajan is the archetypal sort of military emperor and um, is described by his contemporaries, um, trying perhaps to flatter him, as the best emperor, the Optimus Princep. So he is sort of the the paradigm of of everything that an emperor could be. Uh, Marcus Aurelius is... to to some extent affected by that because part of what he's doing is defending some of those territories um, and having to deal with problems in in those similar areas, the north and in the the east. But also there would have been, um, you know, a a way if he wanted to of not having gone to war. Um, He didn't have to lead his troops from the front. Other emperors hadn't. Trajan had, which which set a, a precedent to some extent, but he could have perhaps bowed out um, and just let generals um, uh, do do their work. Other emperors had done that um, quite successfully. Um, But he did seem to want to go and go to the front and be involved in the battles and be um, commanding the troops. Um, So that was perhaps because he felt he should as an emperor. Um, He wasn't willing to shirk that responsibility, perhaps. Um, But it was. Uh, it has sort of marked his reign. It, it does uh, mean that the majority, actually, of his reign, over half, uh, was spent on campaign and not in Rome. 
And how successful was he as a military commander? Was he able to retain the territories that Trajan had conquered? Um, So those territories had already started slipping, really. Um, And uh, so it was more of his his war was defensive to begin with, as you you say. Um, And he managed to do that quite successfully. So he did manage to defend Italy, for example, and he did manage to, to make deals with the um, different peoples who had come over, the Marcomanni, the um, Quadi and, and others. Um, there's a lot of diplomacy talked about, actually, in our, our sources, um, as well as, you know, sort of you know, the actual uh, fighting. Um, there seem to have been relatively few pitched battles in Marcus Aurelius's um, military experience. Um, and for, for that, the sort of sources I'm using are things like Marcus Aurelius's column. So he had his, his own column, which showed the the, the wars um, that he had on the northern frontiers, um, which do show very bloody battles and and very and really violent and horrific scenes. Um, so there was a great deal of of, of that that going on. Uh, but also, like I say, we hear about about the diplomacy, about letting particular people settle in particular places, and and also the breakdown of diplomacy um, when things go wrong, um, uh, when when treaties are broken. Uh, Marcus Aurelius can sometimes act in a quite a, a strong and um, our sources say uncharacteristic way. At one point he asks for a, a, a leader of, of an enemy to be bought to him for a you know, large amount of money. And if they bring him decapitated, they'll get slightly less money, but that's still okay to bring him decapitated. He really you know, has a, um, a problem with this particular person. Um, so there was a great deal of violence. There was a great deal of, 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 of bloodshed. Um, and, but he does seem to have been successful <laughs> as in, in that, in that violence, in that, in that bloodshed, because he does, um, do a good defensive job, um, in his, uh, in his reign. And he's also, um, seems to be going on the offensive um, towards the end of the 170s. So there's um, an idea that he might try and start to take some of the territory back and and uh, go on the offensive. But um, his death in, in, in 180 puts a stop to that. And considering he spent so much time on campaign, was he able to achieve much on what you might call the domestic front? Yeah, so our sources talk about um, how when he is in Rome, the short periods where he he can come to Rome, he is brilliant at administration. He is able to sit and hear court cases. He can um, he he sorts out um, any problems that are you know have arisen in Rome. He makes sure that he spends time with um, the people as and you know gives generous gifts to the people as well as um, the the senators and um, and the equestrians. So he he is a very good uh, administrator according to the according to the sources. And that's how he spends the majority of the beginning of his reign. So that idea that Lucius Verus goes off um, and fights the wars, and Marcus Aurelius stays in Rome and deals with um, actually running Rome, um, seems to work quite well. Uh, and it's, of course, the death of Lucius Verres, um, and also uh, more more threats of, of uh, the enemies coming closer to Italy that, that put a stop to that. So there's an idea that he could have been sort of the most successful administrative emperor, as it were, if he'd um, had chosen to to do that. But when he is able to be in Rome, he is, um, you know, very well liked and seems to keep all the different groups in, in Roman society on side. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So he says at, at the end of um, the letter... 
farewell, most loving, most delightful and eloquent man, my sweetest master. When you see the unfermented wine seething in the cask, let it remind you that my longing for you is welling up in just the same way in my breast and overflowing and foaming. Fare ever well. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now the thing that Marcus Aurelius is probably best known for today is his philosophical writings. Mm-hmm. And he was influenced, um, I believe, strongly by the Stoic belief system. So what were kind of the key tenets of Marcus Aurelius's philosophy? So we have um, a, a, a text written by Marcus Aurelius, The Meditations, um, which is a sort of a philosophical treatise. It's, it's a notebook, really. It's, it's him kind of writing down a sort of personal diary, a personal notebook of, of things, of ways to live, um, of philosophical maxims. So there are quotes from, from other philosophers in there as well. Um, but just a, a, a guide to being a good person. Um, he is thinking about a guide to being a good ruler, um, not necessarily for other people, but for himself um, and what that would require. And also it includes some of the things that he thinks are the best qualities um, of people that he's known. So in book one of the meditations, he talks about family members and his tutors and he says, this is what I've learned from them. Um, book one is really the only book that has a sort of structure like that. The rest of it is is, is notes on different, different themes. Um, so when he's writing the meditations, he is talking a lot about uh, ways of being the best person you can be, I think is is the way to put it, a way to live your life that means you are um, kind and fair and just and treat people in the way that you might like to be treated. These are all clearly good qualities to, to live by. Um and he uses, you know, the f- philosophical thought to to help that. He uses, um, like you say, stoic principles, other principles as well. He he quotes other schools of philosoph- philosophy too. Um, he does seem to be most strongly influenced by the Stoics and to be thinking about um, 
the universe in stoic terms so a sort of divine uh, reason that everyone is attached to and then you have your own governing uh, body governing mind really um that uh you should use to uh like i say be the best best person you can be um but he says things like, you know, don't judge others. You should be able to um, lift yourself above that because actually what does judging do? If you are judging other people, you are making certain decisions about their behaviour which are not yours to make. Um, and it's never going to do you any good. It's only going to cause you harm. So just don't do it. Just just step away and and and, and don't uh, put yourself in, in that sort of situation. Um, so that's the sort of thing that it's the meditations is is uh, full of, um, and he repeats themes like ethical behaviour. He also talks a lot about death um, because that was a clearly a reality of his life as um, both as a, as a soldier emperor, as someone who is fighting wars, but also back in um, terms of his family, uh, he has at least thirteen children a lot of whom die before um, before they uh, can reach adulthood. So he's constantly having to deal with, with these um, this sort of infant mortality, the loss of children um, in particular. And he does write about that. Um, he writes about not getting too attached to your children, for example. Uh, when you kiss them goodnight, think that they could be dead in the morning. That's a reality of life. So there are some darker notes in the meditations as, as well as, um, uh, like I say, a sort of guide to, to living the best life that you can. Were these meditations intended for posterity? Did he think these would form part of his legacy or were they really just something he was writing privately for himself? Yeah, it, they seem more private, I think. I don't think he necessarily um, expected them to, us to be talking about them in, in 2021. 20, um, actually, one of the points that he makes in his meditations is you should focus on what you do now. Don't think about posterity because when you die, you know, your reputation will die not much longer longer after you if you're lucky enough to have a reputation it's not going to last very long so focus on on living well now don't think about about posterity um so he might be quite surprised that we're still <laughs> talking about about the meditations uh, this long after but they weren't actually well known in antiquity or no, at, known as far as we we know um they became uh, popular or became uh, part something that people knew again uh, sort of in the Byzantine period so um 8th 9th 10th centuries um we see them sort of coming up again there are a few references earlier on than that but um uh, not uh, sort of you know we don't get Cassius Dio for example or even the biographer of the in the Historia Augusta talking about the meditations um they do seem to have been a more private notebook that you know were was preserved because of who Marcus Aurelius was um but he certainly wasn't the only emperor to write um we have mentions of other things emperors wrote um in the histories as well so treatises on particular things or or you know, satirical pamphlets. Uh, Nero quite liked writing poems, scurrilous poems about people. Um, so uh, some not scurrilous, some lovely poems as well. The, the idea of emperors writing is is there in the histories. It's just this is one that we have, which is which is great. But it, but is the idea of an emperor having this kind of philosophical bent? Is that unusual, mm. or is it just because 
it happens to survive in his case. So it does seem that that Marcus Aurelius was particularly interested in philosophy. So Antoninus Pius was as well. One of the main um, uh, praises that that uh, Marcus Aurelius gives Antoninus Pius in Book One of the Meditations is that he was a, a very um, uh, keen uh, philosopher. That he had a very keen interest in in the subject and that he knew his philosophy really well. Um, the education of Marcus Aurelius seems to have made him particularly interested in this. Um, of course, the, the idea of engaging with philosophy is there, like I say, for, for Antoninus Pius too. Um, there are other aspects of sort of uh, education that other emperors engage with. So again, not to harp on about Nero, but he was, you know, very interested in poetry and, and you know, writing poetry and, and that sort of thing. He was very interested in the Greek language. He liked to speak in the Greek language uh, if he, you know, was was addressing uh, particular people. Um, so there was that element of culture, I guess, in, in other um, emperors that we see as well coming through. But um, certainly uh, we don't have anything like the philosophical um, uh, uh, ideas in, in the meditations um, necessarily coming through any other of our sources. And can we see much evidence of Marcus Aurelius actually reigning in accordance with the philosophical principles he wrote about? And how much did he live up to his own ideals? Yeah, so this is a very interesting question. And I guess it's it's one of those where what's good about the meditations, what, what the meditations actually is, is... A, a set of principles that can be moulded, that you can adapt to particular situations and adopt in particular situations, um, of, of living sort of the best way that you can, whatever that best way is. So part of Stoic philosophy as well is being able to live um, whilst you know, being involved in the politics, for example, of a um, of, of, of running the empire. Seneca is another very famous um, Stoic uh, philosopher who was an advisor to Caligula and then an advisor, or tutor, sorry, to Caligula and then an advisor to Nero. Um, so very well connected in the imperial family. Uh, Marcus Aurelius is, is doing that, I think. He is taking the ideas of living a life well and but adapting that to different situations. So living your life well might be going out, um, you know, in the context of being Roman emperor, might be going out and brutally killing many um, many of, of the enemy. And, and that is perhaps harder for us to square up because um, we sometimes get the idea of Marcus Aurelius as a, an emperor who sat in his study and, you know, just wrote and, and read and, you know, administered justice very fairly, um, which, of course, you know, he did. <laughs> That's sort of perhaps more characteristic of the beginning of his reign. But when he needed to, when he needed to go and, uh, and, and go to war, he was um, able to do that as well. So, Perhaps the versatility of of, of his philosophical um, ideas and and the way that he approached being emperor um, helps to to give a bit of a, an idea that that he didn't necessarily let stoicism um, rule the way that he conducted himself, but it does seem that he just tried to conduct himself in a way that was appropriate to each situation. And you mentioned earlier um, Marcus Aurelius's successor, Commodus who history generally doesn't record as kind as kindly as his father. I mean, is Marcus Aurelius in any way responsible for the fact that his son's reign is something of a disaster? 
Yeah, so this is, of course, the, the um, uh, difficult to get away from Commodus after Gladiator, which is a wonderful film, but uh, paints him in a very particular kind of way. And, you know, our sources also um, are not big fans of, of Commodus. Cassius Dyer, in fact, is um, a senator during the reign of Commodus, so he has first-hand experience and talks about that in his histories of being a senator under, under Commodus. Um our sources try in some to some extent to separate Marcus Aurelius from Commodus. So um, some say that Faustina, Marcus Aurelius' wife, had an affair. Um, this child can't possibly be Marcus Aurelius' child. There are other sordid stories about gladiators and... and um, there's a particularly horrible story in the Historia Augusta, which is, I don't think is particularly reliable. Um, and even then it's sort of talked about as a bit of a rumour that um, Faustina was uh, particularly attracted to a gladiator uh, at one one stage. Um, and in order to, to, you know, have a son, to make a son, to have a son to be an heir, um, the an oracle told Marcus Aurelius that they should um, kill, kill this gladiator um, and... Uh, basically copulate in a bath of the gladiator's blood. And that's why uh, Commodus then has this obsession with gladiators and fighting in the gladiatorial arena. So you can see how the sources are trying their best to sort of come up with reasons why, um, well, trying their best, trying to be salacious as well, um, are coming up with reasons why these two people could possibly be related, how such a good emperor could have a child that uh, was such a bad emperor. Um, but Commodus, um, you know, is is to some extent groomed, to the extent that you can be, I guess, when when with Marcus Aurelius being um, away on, on campaign. Um, in 175 CE, there's a revolt against Marcus Aurelius. So general in Syria um, uh, leads a revolt. His name's Ovidius Cassius. And at that stage, um, Marcus Aurelius is a bit afraid of, of what might happen to Commodus if he's left alone in, in Rome. So he brings him out, um, uh, you know, uh, on to the military camp, introduces him to all the soldiers and, you know, gets him familiar with that, that scenario. Um, then when Avidius Cassius is, is defeated, Marcus Aurelius goes back to Rome for a couple of years. And it's at that stage that Commodus is raised to a sort of co-emperor with, with Marcus Aurelius to try and um, give, him, give him a bit of training. There's partly... The, the fact that Marcus Aurelius, of course, would have been uh, away a lot, as it were, and um, he was on campaign a lot. Um, but Commodus is uh, also uh, uh, his own character, I guess. He he has his own um, way of thinking about the principate, of thinking about what it is to be an emperor. And I think that has a lot to do with the way that um, Roman emperors are characterised. Um, these these people did, of course, have very different ideas. Marcus Aurelius clearly had particular ideas to do with, um, you know, uh, b b ethics and, and philosophy and, and doing particular things. He did go out to the frontiers. He did kill people. You know that all of, all of that. But Commodus probably had a very different idea of what he wanted to be as a, an emperor, as you know Nero did compared to Augustus. As, as Caligula had a very different idea of what it was to be an emperor as well, and the autocracy that an emperor could have. Um, so there is a um, you know an element of that I think, and, and our historians like mo some models of being an emperor and dislike others, as you would expect. So we're recording this and it's nearly the 1900th birthday of Marcus Aurelius, who um, 
and nowadays, you know, you can find his philosophical quotes on posters, mm. on tea towels, <laughs> um, anywhere, anywhere you care to look. Do you think if he was kind of alive now and he saw how his reputation was nearly 2,000 years later, do you think he'd be somewhat surprised the way we view him today? I think, he, I think he'd be surprised he's still viewed today. <laughs> like I said from, from the meditations, he's very clear that when you die, your reputation will, you know, will not last long. Um, and that seems to be the way that he he thinks about the relationship between life, death, and posterity. Um, anyway, so so I think the idea that we are got all of these little fragments of different things and are trying to to piece them all together to to put uh, you know to give him a biography, to give him a, an idea of his life, might be slightly surprising. He also might be quite surprised at the fact that we have letters um, still between him and his tutor, one of his tutors. So he would have had about eighteen tutors um, uh, as a young um, as a young boy and, and as a young adult. Um, and one of them was a man named Fronto. He was his tutor in in Latin oratory. And we do have some of the letters um, now. They were discovered in the nineteenth century between uh, Marcus Aurelius and, and Fronto. Also between Fronto and Lucius Verus and Antoninus Pius as well. Um, and that, you know, is is another interesting part of his his life that that you know to some extent contradicts the meditations. In in the meditations, he's thinking about you know ideals and ethics and and ways of living and detachment from people. You know, being detached from your children to some extent, being detached from um, th- you know things that are going to cause you pain. Whereas in the letters, um, a lot of them are, you know, writing to Fronto about about medical illnesses. So, um, you know, I hear your your daughter is sick. How is she? You know, I hear you are sick. You know, what's going on? You know, how bad is your mucus? Those kinds of things. And they're quite, you know, they get quite... um, explicit in in medical terms um but they also show so the the other side of that sort of detachment of Marcus Aurelius that we get through the meditations they also show a very loving relationship between Marcus Aurelius and Fronto in a way that you know can sometimes um surprise people so I have a um an example of how if you don't mind how he signs off um not all of his letters, but one of his letters that I think is, is you know, sums up uh, perhaps um, some of the, the excessive way in which he tries to show his love for, for his tutor. Um, so he says at, at the end of um, the letter, farewell, most loving, most delightful and eloquent man, my sweetest master. When you see the unfermented wine seething in the cast, let it remind you that my longing for you is welling up in just the same way in my breast and overflowing and foaming fair ever well um so you know this quite it's 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 quite a um emotional <laughs> um, uh, lots of these letters are quite emotional in the way that he talks about fronto about about how much he loves him about the relationship they have as as tutor and and pupil um, and that remains even when Marcus Aurelius becomes emperor. Um, you know, he still refers to Fronto as, as you know, to master. He still refers to him um, as his as his teacher. Um, so there is a, um, you know, a nice kind of counter way of viewing some of the more, more uh, tea towel like quotes <laughs> from, from the meditations. But I think, you know, he would possibly be surprised that we're still reading the letters between him and his tutor in 2021. <laughs> That was Shushma Malik. As I mentioned earlier, you can read her piece on Marcus Aurelius in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes articles on Anglo-Saxon Christianity, the AIDS crisis, the life of Prince Philip and a whole lot more.
And if you'd like to hear more from Shushma, she also recorded an episode on Roman emperors for our Everything You Wanted to Know series a few weeks ago. You can find that in our back catalogue or go to historyextra.com and search for Roman emperors. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back on Friday with an episode on Napoleon's art theft.